experience. You are tuned into Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. Bringing you insight from outside the mainstream, I am your host, Ryan. Today we look into the question, do experts deserve to go unchallenged? And we debut a new segment next on Living with Liberty. go unquestioned. Have they built up enough credibility for us just to go along with what they say? Especially if they show us a little bit of data or no data, they're just trying to speak something into being. When they make that decree based on science, should we just blindly do what they say, especially indefinitely like they've wanted here with this whole COVID mess? Now, these experts certainly seem to think so, and so do what seems to be a majority of writers out there. I have an article here that we're going to cover today, and I want to give a shout out to CC for bringing it to my attention. It's titled, Education Frontlines, Why Are People Anti-Science? by John Richard Schrock. First and foremost, before we get into that, isn't part of the scientific method of discovery to continually hypothesize and experiment to test that hypothesis? Isn't it part of the scientific method of discovery to continue to challenge findings to see if there's something better or do they hold up under different conditions? Isn't it part of the scientific method to analyze new data, even data that runs counter to the original hypothesis, maybe even runs counter to what was originally discovered, and certainly runs counter to what somebody's ideology is, and update the discovery based on that new data, no matter what it shows. Now, in a normal world, yes, it would be. We would be doing that as part of the scientific method and part of the scientific process of discovery. And we did that probably prior to 2016, let's call it. But we live in an alternate reality right now where all new data must be ignored and the people must bow down to their expert overlords. Shut up and follow the science, peon. That is the overtone of this article. Now, I looked up old John Richard Schrock, and let me say this, is there anything more elitist than going by all three names? I mean, that right there you read that, uh, the author is, is going by three names and you know it's going to have elitist overtones and that they're going to tell you what to do. 
Well, anyway, I looked him up mainly because I had a suspicion about what his life experience would be, and I was right about that. He's your basic academic elitist who might be book smart. He probably is a smart guy, but he has no idea about how things actually work in the real world. He's a biology professor. His whole educational background is in science, which makes this article that he wrote even more surprising, but we'll get into that in a minute. And he's done absolutely nothing outside of academia. Now, being a sciencey kind of guy, I would have expected more out of this article by old JRS. But the points he made in it are surprisingly easy pickings for a lowly, publicly educated, deplorable such as myself. So let's dive into it. First, Schrock references from a science journal for reasons people are anti-science. They're more like they're terming them more like for problems is how they frame it up. I'll link this article in a description box. Now, the first problem he notes that Schrock notes is this. Scientists are not perceived as experts or lack credibility and therefore are ignored. They break that into the recipient looking for expertise, honesty, and objectivity in the scientists. Well, yeah, those are important things in a scientist, aren't they? I mean, we've seen over the last two plus years, uh, scientists coming on TV telling us this and that, and they're obviously politicized. I mean, just look at the uh, data coming out of the CDC, the FDA, Fauci's House of Horrors. We're looking for expertise and honesty and objectivity, and we've got none of that. So yes, we if we're going to trust a scientist, they better have those things. Anyway, Schrock goes on here. Some might dismiss scientists for being elitist. Huh, okay, yep. Others note that in the past, scientists have lied for the tobacco or auto industries or insert other industry, right? Some see scientists as atheists. And medical scientists can be seen as dishonest agents for pharmaceutical companies. Well, okay, so he just made every point that we've been making for the last two years on why we're not trusting the scientists these days. It's because they become overtly and obviously politicized. There's an agenda. They're following the agenda. So, yes, all of this is true. And if this is a problem, if the scientific community views this as a problem, isn't it incumbent upon that community to combat those narratives? Isn't it upon them to show us data, to show us how objective they are, to show us that they uh, are accepting and, and verifying these alternative data points out there, i.e. Uh, the studies on mass that were just totally ignored about how harmful they are, and we're just now getting the trickle out about uh, how bad they were for kids and their development. And there was a new study I just saw uh, today about how uh, much bacteria is growing on them things. It was, shouldn't, I mean... Shouldn't it be incumbent upon the scientific community to say, okay, yes, this is our hypothesis. We tested it. Here's true. We're testing this other set of data from these other studies that uh, maybe we agree with them, maybe we don't. But since we're scientists, our ideology has to be put aside so we can objectively look at these and come up to a reasonable conclusion so the public trusts us. It's incumbent upon them to do that. But we have been lied to repeatedly by the so-called scientific and medical experts over the course of time, yes, but particularly in these last two years. People now have more information at their fingertips than was ever available 
to them at their public library. We have more information at our fingertips than was available at any point in human history. We can check data and information against what we are being told to verify if it's true or not. It's a lot harder to propagandize these days. I'm not saying it still doesn't happen. It obviously does. Talk to a CNN viewer. But it's a lot harder if someone's taken two seconds to think and say, oh, that doesn't sound right. I'm going to go and take a look for myself and see what's out there. We can form our own hypothesis and test that hypothesis against available data, against available studies that are out there. And that's what the elitist scientific community and the academics don't like, is that we have this power to do that. And it makes them look silly. It has become apparent that science is being shoehorned to fit the narrative of the day, to fit the approved narrative of whatever authoritarian measure the government wants to put in place. People are seeing right through that, and it should be no surprise that people are skeptical of scientists. Now, the second factor arises, Schrock goes on in his piece, when the listener is a member of a group that holds anti-science attitudes. This includes both political and religious groups. This polarization can result in immediate rejection of any message from the out-group without any consideration of the content of the message itself. These groups are now much more easily held together with social media. Now this, th this is just straight up and a blatant attack on conservatives and those who hold religious beliefs. They're saying, you are anti-science if you hold a particular political belief or a religious belief especially if it runs counter to what these uh, expert scientific overlords are demanding. We all know that it's not being hidden here. We all know what political group is being referenced here. We all know it's not just Christianity. There's many religions that hold uh, different viewpoints about uh, scientific discovery and what you should put into your body and what you shouldn't, etc. Not just Christianity. It's, it's, there's a lot of religious uh, um, groups out there that have those views. Now, the other thing here, and this this just proves the point. So old JRS, he's a science guy. And in point one, they said part of the problem is, is uh, scientists are viewed as elitists. So this statement here just goes back and, and <laughs> it proves that point. This statement goes back to point one where it's noted some dismiss scientists as elitists. When you make statements like this, it shows you are an elitist. The statement does not prove your case otherwise that scientists aren't elitists. Now, I'm talking probably more of your academia-type scientists, the ones that haven't actually done anything in life but um, hung out in academia and research stuff. Not saying it's not invaluable, but there's a point of reference and a point of view those people have that uh, most... Um, your average American doesn't because they live in the real world. I mean, many scientists are very nice. I've known several throughout the course of my career. I've been friends with scientists. They're very nice people. But the difference is those scientists I've been friends with have been people that have been in industry. They've made careers out of it. They have a science degree, but they've done, a, you know, other things within, uh, you know, that with that science degree that's helped advance, uh, you know, cures for diseases and, uh, just different uh, products that we use every day. So I'm not saying this is all scientists. A lot of the scientists I've dealt with are not elitists. They're you and I, everyday kind of people. 
that goes for a, a lot of doctors too. I mean, there are some doctors out there who are, uh, you know, think they're the smartest person in the room, but most of them are very, very nice people and I love them to death. But, you know, we've got this certain segment here and they're the ones that are the loudest, right? And I think they give the other folks in those uh, scientific communities a bad name by being the loudest, by, by uh, like doing science based on their ideology versus what the facts are. So how, how the statement, the statement just basically supports point one where they, they say people view scientists as elitists, and then you come out and make a statement like this. I mean, they, they, this, this group here, this journal that Schrock took this from, uh, they're, they're attacking people for holding a science anti-science attitude because they choose to question the validity of what the science says or hold dear to their religious viewpoint and won't give in to their little G God complex and, and, and obey their every command. That is the very definition of, a, of an elitist. Now, the third problem noted by Schrock is when the scientific message itself is rejected based on what people already believe is true. The authors describe cognitive dissonance, which arises when a person is exposed to information that conflicts with their existing beliefs, attitudes, or behaviors. This leads to rejecting the science or making it trivial, etc. In addition, corrections provided by media often reinforce their disbelief. This whole article is an exercise in cognitive dissonance. I'll show you this in a minute. I mean, you probably already see it, but we'll see this more in a minute when we get to Schrock's view on COVID. Now, we've had two-plus years of data on COVID, on what works and what doesn't work, and John Richard Schrock, scientist extraordinaire, just wants to ignore it because it conflicts with the current thing Chip he currently has inserted. Yet another case in point why we should continue to question the so-called experts. They are just as bad, if not worse, at taking in new information and seeing if it holds true or not. And then changing their position or their belief based on that new information. See, they're accusing us of doing that which they are guilty of. So, yes, we should continue to question what these experts say. We should continue to verify they've proven themselves to be uh, not credible. And the mainstream ones in particular are not even acknowledging the data that counters their personal viewpoints or hypotheses. It just becomes an exercise of, I'm right, I was right the first time, don't question me, put your damn mask on. Now, Schrock writes, and this is the final problem, he writes this, the final problem they describe is the message is not matching how the recipient sees the world. This would include a broader view of common sense being more valuable than intellectual book learning. They note viewers of CNN or Fox News will automatically trust their source and disparage the opposition without thinking the issue through. Now, we are fair here. There is actually a modicum of truth to this. People do put too much truth into their preferred yelling head less and less these days. I saw a poll the other day where uh, media trust is down to about 11%. So it's less and less every day. But we still have those out there that whatever's broadcast on CNN or Fox News, that's the truth. And you know, anything counter to that, even if it's a scientific study, I'm not even going to consider it. So we do see that. That's a fair point. 
Now, here's the other thing about this, though. Studies do show that conservatives are much more likely to check in on liberal media sources so they can get that alternative point of view than liberals are to check in on conservative sources. So the blindly following the media mockingbirds without verification does seem to skew to one side of the scale here, as I said, given that fact that we know that conservatives are more likely to go check alternative sources than the liberals it still can be said all sides are indeed guilty of trusting but not verifying information from a yelling head that doesn't pass the common sense test. The blind trust does not lend itself to not seeking out alternative theories or information sources to verify this blind trust people have in in these media sources. And honestly, it leads to intellectual laziness. Like I said, we've got more information than ever before at our fingertips. It takes two seconds to do a search. DuckDuckGo, we don't use Google, DuckDuckGo, to take a look and see if what we're being told is correct or not. All right, so before we get on to Johnny's cognitive dissonance problem here, even more so than we've already seen. There is one other point I agree with him on. Though I would bet if he and I were in a room debating it, his take would be very different than mine. The statement goes like this. But the major problem in these last two years has been the ability to communicate the basic human anatomy and physiology involved, the nature of viruses, and the way the immune system works. Yeah, that has been a major problem. I agree with you there, John. We have had a major problem communicating facts surrounding the basics of what makes a man a man and a woman a woman, the basics of how our bodies and immune systems operate. Nobody wants to touch the fact that the transgender movement, by its very nature, is anti-science, like the real kind of anti-science. Like, I'm denying that uh, my biology is a man. I'm going to pretend to be a woman. I'm not, you do you, I don't care, but let's not try and say that that's scientific here. These scientists in this article are moaning because the plebeians disagree with their decrees. They disagree with their findings. They go and find their other their own facts and then uh, debate them or debunk them. Transgenderism violates the very facts of human anatomy, which is a science, oh, by the way. Men can't be women and women can't be men. Biology is a law. No matter how many hormone blockers or sex change operations one has, your chromosomes are what they are. Your DNA is what it is. Now, there's the whole not communicating the nature of viruses and how immune systems work. Again, exactly. I agree with you there. There's been a major problem in communicating how viruses and immune systems work. So let's think about this again. What do viruses do? Well, they mutate so they can survive. If they kill their host, uh, they die with the host. You kill, uh, you're a virus and you kill uh, everything you're infecting, well, you die too. Now, I know viruses aren't alive, but they're still mutating to survive, right? They might not be alive. They might not be thinking, but they're still a pathogen that goes through a life cycle. Yet this whole thing about how uh, viruses just do virusy things. Seems lost on the scientific community as we've had all these different COVID variants. 
Now, that could very well have been an act being put on, especially given that the public health officials haven't ever been granted so much power and time in the spotlight in their careers and lifetimes, and they wanted to keep those good things going, so they just ignored the actual science of what a virus does. But it seems no one wants to ask the question of, did we accelerate the evolutionary pressure on the coronavirus by jabbing hundreds of millions, billions of people with an experimental drug that in the end does nothing. Would the coronavirus have just died off because people would have built up what looks like a better and broader immunity by being naturally exposed and letting their immune system do its job versus rushing an experimental therapeutic out there that gave people antibodies for a little bit of time to a piece of the spike protein. And that's what caused the virus to mutate and mutate more quickly than it might have otherwise to try and evade that protection. If we were doing science here, instead of giving in to fear, we might have had an answer to that. We might get an answer to that. Who knows? There might be a study out there that takes a look at that, but you know, that's being memory hold, but you know what? Just go ahead. Uh, Keep, uh, just keep on accusing me of being anti-science. That's fine. I can take it. Whatever. Now, let's get on to the cognitive dissonance piece. I know you've been anxiously awaiting here. Now, the piece opens with this statement. Because refusing vaccination against COVID-19 is costing lives now and will continue to do so in the future. Okay, right there. We've already got tons of evidence out there saying that these therapeutic injections do not necessarily save lives. Yet you're going to open a piece like that uh, with a statement that makes it seem like getting vaccinated against COVID-19 is costing all these lives because that, that vaccination is going to save your life in the future here. So right there, right off the bat, not considering the alternative data that's out there and the proven data that it doesn't matter if you've been jabbed or not, It's a potentially, you may die based on other risk factors that have nothing to do even with the virus itself. Data shows that, and in an unacceptable amount of cases, the jabs have led to a host of other health issues, including death. People died from it. So this is just ridiculous for them to open this piece with such a statement saying that the the COVID therapeutic jab saves lives. Maybe it does, and certainly we know it doesn't. Now, the other piece here is around masks that John seems to have a little cognitive dissonance about. Yes, oh, Johnny Boy seems to love his masks, even though there's plenty of science out there saying they don't work. Even though the, uh, the Lord of COVID, Lord Fauci, The first thing he said was, they're not going to do anything. But yet, here we go. We've got Schrock, who's in love with his mask. So here's what Schrock wrote, and I will be promptly shredding this little bit of information here. He says this, while our COVID death rate is 3,171 per million, Germany's is only 1,682. And death rates are far lower in South Korea, Japan, China, Singapore, etc. due to a different culture where citizens take far more responsibility for protecting the health of everyone around them and they have worn face masks for decades. 
And those people in Asia have still gotten sick for decades, John. Also, what do we know about the people who are most at risk for uh, COVID death? They're old, sick, and obese. And the old part, I will argue, is not necessarily a huge factor in a minute. So let's figure out why death rates are lower in the five countries being compared to the U.S. Now take a look at this chart ranking the countries in terms of the amount of population who is obese. You'll see the United States is in there at 12th in the world. We are the 12th most obese country in the world. And then we go 65 slots and we get to Germany, 65 slots down the rankings. And it's another 156 slots until we encounter the first Asian country that Schrock noted. So knowing what we know about who is affected most by COVID, is it really the masks preventing death? Is it really the masks preventing illness? Or is it the fact that every nation listed here seems to take their personal health more seriously than the U.S.? It, it has nothing to do about the health of those around them, it has everything to do with they take their personal well-being, their personal health more seriously than the U.S. Now, that might be a hypothesis worth testing, right? That's kind of, we can scientifically look at that, right? It seems like we might be doing some science here. But there's no way to drive fear into a population by telling them to live a healthier lifestyle or you'll die. So even if someone's exploring this possibility, again, there could be studies out there going on, it's likely the findings get memory hold. Now, back to the age thing. Age also doesn't seem to be a large factor in these countries, as evidenced by this chart. Now, according to this data, Japan has been among the lowest death rates with COVID. That was noted by old JRS here. Yet their population has the highest average age on the planet, in uh, coming in at 48.6 years of age. So Japan, one of the lowest death rates. Japan, the oldest country in the world. But they had a low death rate. Hmm, could it be that's not necessarily even the age of the person? Well, we can't just go by one data point, so let's look at some more here. Germany whose death rate is roughly half that of the United States, has the second oldest population on the planet at 47.8 years of age. Now, given that three countries where the average age of the population exceeds that of the U.S., as South Korea comes in at number 20 in the world as the 20th oldest country at 43.2 years of age, it seems that age has less to do with the risk of death overall so age isn't as big of a factor, given this data, as one might think. So it's not the age, but the overall health might be the biggest contributing factor to survival from a COVID infection. But you know what? You and I are the ones with cognitive dissonance problems. So quit looking at that data and questions, and quit questioning our expert overlords with your anti-science rhetoric. If you are listening to the audio-only show and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star review. It helps others find the show. Whether you are listening to the audio version or are viewing on Rumble or YouTube, hit that subscribe button. The more subscriptions we have, the more the show gets out 
into the recommendations made by the algorithms and the more we are able to spread the truth. All right, I went way longer than I thought I would on that Schrock piece, but I think it's important to know exactly what the so-called experts think of everyday Americans who think for themselves. Experts need to be questioned, and we shouldn't back down just because they are so-called experts. This Schrock piece is exactly why, since we just debunked every argument he made with readily available data, with data that's at our fingertips. Experts need to be questioned. That's how we continue to prove uh, our scientific theories. It's how we continue to progress on as a society. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't make half the discoveries that we make. Just If someone accepted that, you know, the square wheel was the best and, and didn't test out a round one, we'd still be on square wheels, right? I mean, so it, it's this continual testing and digging and proving or disproving hypothesis that move us forward. So, yes, experts deserve to be questioned, especially if they're proving themselves to be Nothing more than ideologues who are being sent out there to propagate the government message. Okay, so finishing up today, I want to finish up with a new segment I'm calling Constitutional Conversations. One thing that's been abundantly clear in these last few years, probably even much before that, but certainly, at least to me, has been highlighted these last few years, it has been the lack of knowledge we as a country have in our Constitution. There are six things we need to do when it comes to the Constitution, and we must do them regularly because you, if you don't use it, you lose it. We must read, study, teach, know, assert, and defend the Constitution because that's what defends our rights. That's what we can do to uphold our rights and make sure that the government doesn't encroach upon our rights. Now, I'd like to take credit for coming up with that, but I can't. It comes from a John Jay quote, and that quote goes like this. Every member of the state ought diligently to read and to study the constitution of his country and teach the rising generation to be free. By knowing their rights, they will sooner perceive when they are violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. Like I said, if we don't practice something, we lose it. If we don't study something, it might be way back there in the memory banks, but it's a lot harder to call it up if we let it go for a long time than if we're routinely studying something and looking at something. Like John Jay you know, said in his quote here, we know our rights, we know them like the back of our hand, we can that much sooner know when the government is overstepping their bounds and defend and assert those rights and tell them to back off. That's what happened to our constitutional knowledge, though. We didn't practice it. We stopped teaching it. It's been, we have allowed it to be pushed out of our schools. We as adults don't take time to read and study it. You can read through the Constitution in 20, 30 minutes. It's not necessarily the easiest read in the world. A lot of it's re written in legalese, but if we don't take the time to do it, we lose it. And it's a lot harder when the government starts to overstep its bounds for us to try and recall, is that a right of mine or not? I don't know. And we lose precious time in pushing back on it. The politicians know this. They know that as a whole, 
we don't know the Constitution like we should, and they continue to usurp more and more power for themselves and, and the federal government, honestly. So that with that in mind, I wanted to have a segment on this show where we cover the Constitution from time to time and give you the knowledge of what it says so you can see immediately when politicians are overstepping their authority and call them out immediately on it. Now, today we are going to start with the 17th Amendment, mainly because I know we're not starting at the beginning, but this is mainly because in a chat group a couple weeks ago, we were discussing the 17th Amendment. There's a number of us that believe it should be repealed. And in that chat group, I said, that's where I would start here with this segment. So the 17th Amendment gave the people, gave the voters the power to directly elect their senators. Prior to passage of the 17th Amendment, state legislatures selected the senators. This uh, original intent of the, found of the founders in constructing the government this way was so that there's balance to our government. So there was balance between the people and the states. The original intent of the founders was that the House of Representatives is the people's voice and the Senate is the state's voice. The state as a whole, high-level state, not you or I who's living in a state collectively, but what does the state need from the federal government or why, uh, why is the federal government encroaching upon the state? The senators were there to push back on those sorts of things when they were beholden to the state. So the People's House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate was to be the state's house, if you will. And so it was ensuring then we could ensure that issues important to the people were in balance with what the issues of the states were, the, the, the important issues to the states. The two groups of representatives had separate bosses, so they answered to separate people. So the viewpoints were a little bit different. Now, what the 17th Amendment has done is it has, in essence, left us with two houses of representatives. Senators are now beholden to voters and their interests and special interest groups, and they're not as beholden to state interests, eliminating the balance that our government was intended to have. States now have no seat, very little. I, want, I don't want to say no, but they have very little uh, left of, of their seat at the federal table. They are basically at this point administrators of, of federal programs. Now, how did we get from the founders' intent of having representation in the federal government, balance between the states and the people, to one that has seen the federal government usurp state powers and basically, like I said, reduce them to little more than administrators of the federal programs that the House and the Senate come up with? If I told you propaganda, would you be surprised? Of course not. Propaganda and fake news coupled with declining, uh, a declining understanding of originalist intent is how we got the 17th Amendment. The framers of the Constitution easily could have made provision for the direct, uh, direct election of senators when the Constitution was originally written, but they didn't. There's a reason they didn't. They even took a vote up on this. They did, in fact, vote on the issue of popularly electing senators at the Constitutional Convention, and that measure was defeated 10 to 1. That is a landslide. 
And that is how strongly the founders felt about the Senate being selected by state legislatures. So states had their voices heard at the federal level. So states had a seat at the table in Washington to make sure their rights as a state weren't being trampled. Now, it took less than 50 years after ratification of the Constitution before the proposal of amendments to directly elect senators started. The first one was presented in 1826, and other variations of it were presented in 1829, 1857, and 1868, all of which obviously were defeated. The 17th Amendment was ratified in 1913, which, if you know your constitutional history, was a really bad year for the Constitution because the 16th Amendment uh, ratifying the, the uh, federal income tax was also enacted that year. So 1913, this whole progressive area at the era at the turn of the uh, 20th century was just a disaster for our Constitution. So anyway, up until 1868, all those measures were defeated. It wasn't until the 1890s that opinion really started to shift. And like we see today, that opinion was shifted via misinformation and half-truths and disinformation and propaganda. Now, the Populist Party made it a platform item of theirs. Nobody's ever heard of the Populist Party. I hadn't until I did this research. But they had it as a platform item. You had a couple states at that time that were already doing uh, direct election of their senators. You had a number of other states that were um, allowing people, the voters, to uh, have basically a referendum. It was a non-binding referendum on who their senators should be. The legislatures generally took those recommendations, let's call them from the people, because state legislators want their jobs, right? So they're going to do what the people want. Um, but it still was not uh, official. It was a state legislator still putting their stamp on it. So we had, at the 1890s, we had the shift of an opinion based on misinformation and half-truths. As we entered the 1900s, William Randolph Hearst started using the power of his platform to smear the Senate, printing a series of articles in his Cosmopolitan magazine titled The Treason of the Senate. The Cosmopolitan was a lot different in those days, I guess. And he also had muckrakers, and let's muckrakers, in Rhode Island that attacked Senator Nelson Aldrich, calling him the lead traitor in the whole lot of scurvy senators who controlled the Senate through theft and bribes that corrupted the state legislature, that, uh, and that's why they got put in the Senate. Now, some of the other so-called reasons for moving to a Senate elected by popular vote was to reduce corruption of senators who were supposedly buying their seats from the state legislatures, the Senate seats were not being filled fast enough because state legislatures would deadlock on the candidates, and that the Senate was the millionaire's club. Now, all these things are half-truths at best. Let's start with the millionaire's club. We could say that about today's Senate. We could say that about today's House of Representatives. I mean, you think about Bernie Sanders. That guy went into the Senate on welfare and is now a multimillionaire. He's got multiple houses. So you see how this is, is just a, a exercise in uh, 
half-truths, in fake news, in slander, uh, all of these things. All these reasons are half-truths at best. None of these were actually widespread issues. Between 1857 and 1900, only three investigations were done for corruption of senatorial elections. So in 43 years, three investigations, that's less than one every 10 years. And in the, the entirety of state legislatures uh, selecting senators, there were only 10 senatorial elections that were investigated for any sort of malfeasance. So in 100-plus years of, uh, from the Constitution's uh, ratification with uh, senators being selected by state legislators to 1913, over, a, what's, over 100 years, we have 10 of those senatorial elections that were investigated. That is one every 10, 11 years. Hardly a widespread problem. And also, the deadlocks thing at the state legislator level, those also were not as prevalent as they were made out to be. But, using the rule of propagandizing, tell a lie, tell it often, and tell it confidently, and also with the media taking up its typical position of destroying the Constitution, some things never change, eventually the movement became large enough and the 17th Amendment was born and ratified. The Senate gave in and got the 17th Amendment um, passed and out to the states for ratification. Obviously, it was ratified. So with that, what have we lost with the 17th Amendment? Well, for starters, the states now have very little to no voice at the federal table. As I mentioned before, they are little more at this point than administrators of federal grant programs. And with that, become uh, beholden to the federal rules of those grant programs. Here's some money, state. Do you want it? But you have to use it for this. And, oh, here's the other 15 strings it comes with. Do you still want it? And states take it because it plugs a hole in their budget. And they can say, oh, look, we, we're offering this to the people, even though uh, these programs actually do nothing. We've seen the federal government continue to grow in size, duplicating many of the agencies already operating at the state level. Now, would this have happened had states been at the table when they were created? Would this have happened? All this explosive growth in the federal government, you can go back and look at it, has happened after the 17th Amendment was ratified. Now, if senators were still selected by state legislatures and were uh, instructed to defend the state's rights to these things, would we have this duplication of agencies? Would we have an EPA? Would we have a Department of Education? I think not. We may have had some of these agencies created, but I think many more would not have been created because they ultimately infringe upon the state's rights to do what they want to do as a state. We've also lost cohesion in the Senate. Along with states not really having their interests represented at the table because Senate candidates now have to pander to the voters instead of uh, you know, being securely selected by a state legislature, uh, we've got a number of Senate, uh, states now that have a senator from each party. So in essence, they cancel each other's vote out more often than not, especially in today's hyper-partisan environment. 
Whereas when you had the state legislatures selecting senators, they were almost always from the same party. So you had that cohesion. You had a definite direction the country was going. And they, you know, because of that, they generally had the same philosophy and voted in the same way, ensuring that states' interests were voiced. The 17th Amendment has destroyed the check and balance mechanism of the legislative branch. The intent of the Senate being selected by state legislatures and the House of Representatives by popular vote was to have each house of the legislative branch of government answer to different bosses so they could act as a check on each other and prevent excesses to prevent stupid ideas from becoming law. Would we, if we had that today, would we be in as big of a, uh, a debt hole as a country? If we had these sorts of check and balances, maybe, maybe not. I would probably trend towards maybe not because the Senate would have then put the brakes on the debt and said, whoa, hold on, not, you're usurping state powers here with these programs and everything else and taking out all this debt. We're not going to allow that. But we have the bodies of, of our legislature, both bodies answering to the same boss. So all of that, that check and balance within the legislature, pretty much dead except for the legislative filibuster. And even that is, uh, you listen to the Democrats, that even might be pretty tenuous. Uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema have held firm thus far. Hopefully they do. But that's all we have left between, uh, uh, that's all we have left as, as far as a check and balance of the legislative branches of Senate filibuster on legislation. So we have that. We have really both, bo uh, both bodies of the legislature answering to the same boss, the voter. We have no representation of state interests in Washington at all. I'll take that back. That's an absolute. Very little state uh, interests are represented these days in in Washington, it's all about the people. It's this push towards democracy. You want to know why they always use the term democracy? This is why. They're trying to make it a democracy. We're, we're pushed towards, uh, kind of call it representative mob rule at this point. Now, the framers had it right. Both the people and the states need a seat at the federal table in order to have a balanced government. Now, I'm not going to make it. I've said it before on the show. I'm going to say it here, and I'll probably say it again. Repealing the 17th Amendment is something we need to do to restore the balance within the legislative branch of our government, of our federal government. I believe this would be a necessary step in paring back the size and scope and creep on states' rights that the federal government has uh, endured here, or has uh, uh, put on the states and put on us as people. The states would once again have that seat then at the table, at the federal table with the Senate being selected by state legislatures, answering to someone other than voters, answering to legislators of, of whatever state they came from. And they'd be focused more on state issues and maintaining the state's rights in our republic since they would answer to that state legislature and not the voter and not the special interest group. On the priority of uh, list of things that we need to fight for and fight against, honestly, repealing the 17th Amendment's pretty low right now. We have bigger fish to fry at this moment. 
but it should be something we keep in the back of our mind as we work to return our country to uh, to just operating under this originalist intent of our Constitution. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living With Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.